People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're tuned to Fine Music Radio and it's time for People of Note. Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you. And let me tell you about my guest this week. He's the author Brent Mearsman, a well-known journalist whose work is published internationally. He's currently co-editor of Ground Up. He's the chairperson of the Cape Town Press Club. And he's a compulsive traveler who apparently has visited the Antarctic as well as 85 countries at last count. His latest book, his latest of eight books, is called Rattling the Cage. And the one just before that, A Childhood Made Up, Living with My Mother's Madness. And this was the reason I actually invited Brent in to talk about this very, very personal book, which Zapiro has described as cathartic, insightful, funny, and most of all, courageous. So, Brent Mearsman, welcome to the People of Note studio. Thank you. It's good to have you here. The one question that I've wanted to ask you about this book, A Childhood Made Up, was why did you write it? Because it is incredibly personal. Mm. And although people have said it's humorous, there's also pain in it, and it's a very open expose of you and your life and your family. Mm. Did you feel you needed to write it? Did you think people want to read it? Mm. Well, um, I think that, you know, as a, as a writer, we actually have a job to do in society. And one of our main contributions of what we do is that we will try and articulate emotions and feelings, which everybody feels and has experienced in their lives, mm. but don't necessarily know exactly how to articulate that experience or would not want to make those feelings that they've had privately public. So I think we do that for other people. I think that's, you know, that's what we do as writers. So I'm articulating and expressing deeply personal emotions, um, which are not unique to me. Uh, but I think that is also that's helpful and that's a contribution that we make. The other reason, of course, was that I think that, um, as the book details, uh, you know, it's got that subtitle, um, Living with My Mother's Madness. And yes. I wanted a subtitle everybody could relate to. Yeah. Um, but in <laughs> my true. case, maybe a little bit more so, yeah. um, since my mother was diagnosed as uh, having schizophrenia. And I just think that the knowledge, the lack of knowledge, the ignorance, the fear around um, mental conditions um, is of such a nature that I really felt that I wanted to write something and make a contribution to that as well mm -hmm. um, because it's so little understood. And also, although there's lots written about bipolar, many people with bipolar have, have written. I looked around uh, for years and I found that there was extremely little um, about the children of people who've been diagnosed as schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, those are the main reasons. The main reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is interesting, Brent, is that right at the back, mm -hmm. you write a chapter on what schizophrenia is from a layperson's point of view, which is very easy to understand. So after mm -hmm. reading the book, you know, that was a great help, which I think people will find a great help. Why did you decide to do that for mm -hmm. that very reason? Yes, I did. And also I wanted to make it quite clear, if it wasn't clear enough in the way that the memoir goes, um, 
of, of more acceptance and also of the fact that when my mother was diagnosed and the way she was treated was very, very different from the way things happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, Falkenberg was not the caring, loving, wonderful, generous, extraordinary institution which it is today. Um, at that stage in the 1950s, I mean, it was more like, a, well, my mom described it as a prison camp. Yes. Um, and, of course, she had shock therapy for four years there. So I also wanted to make clear that there's much more hope um, and that the condition is better understood and better treated uh, these days. Mm. It's an interesting read because, as I said, when I saw it, I thought, now, why do I want to hear about Brent's childhood? Knowing that you've written these other books, which we'll talk about as well. But it's an interesting read in that it's not mawkish. It's not sort of self-pitying. And so it makes sense when you say you wanted to share something with people who might not be able to articulate these things. And I think anyone who has lived with a mother with any sort of problems will be able to relate to this. What sort of response have you had from it? Oh, quite, quite incredible. I've, and, and, and nowadays with um, social media, you know, because I'm quite easy to find on things like Twitter and Facebook and, mm-hmm. you know, these platforms. Um, I had a great reaction from people who wrote to me on Facebook, total strangers, and telling me how important the, the book had been for them. And that was really rewarding. I mean, if I had to listen to myself, I would, I'm so critical. I would never <laughs> write another book. But it's the readers that, that actually keep one going as a writer. Yeah. And um, there were four of you, weren't there? It was your mother, father, your brother, and yourself, four of you living in a flat in Milnerton where most of this took place. Yes. And your father was also tricky. Mm. Yeah, now he, that was a whole other thing. So he lived through the Nazi occupation um, of Belgium. I think it permanently scarred him. Um, He also had a speech impediment, which made it very difficult for him to relate. Um, He came as an immigrant to South Africa. He was abused as a, as a child, um, but he broke that cycle. I'm always, it's extraordinary for me how he never, we were never hit as children. We were treated mm-hmm. in the way that children are only treated nowadays thanks to the new laws around corporal punishment. Right, right. And then, of course, he sank into kind of alcoholism and depression. So, yes, so there was that to deal with as well. Um, But an isolated individual, um, and in a way, the two conditions of both parents seem to have complemented each other. Well, they've clearly left you as a (laughs) successful (laughs) writer, Brent. But also music, and um, you've chosen some very interesting tracks, I see. The first, A Nocturne by Chopin. Mm. Is there a story here? Um, Well, possibly his best-known work, um, but uh, he composed it when he was only 20. But it was one of my mother's absolutely favorite pieces of music, so I'd like to share that with with the public. Um, And we also played it uh, at the memorial when she died.
the music of Chopin, his Nocturne number no. 2 in E-flat, Opus 9, played by Idel Biret. And the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, the author Brent Mearsman, whose most recent book is called Rattling the Cage. But I got all absorbed in the one he wrote just before that called A Childhood Made Up, Living with My Mother's Madness. And it turned out to be an extraordinary read in many, many ways. And we were talking about your father, Brent, and... You said during the break for music that he was a, a particularly interesting man and that he never... Uh, your brother, for example, apparently really got to hate him, didn't he? But mm. you didn't. Mm-hmm. No, I, yes. I, things, the, the tensions rose in the house and I think it was very difficult. And I say um, that my, my brother really made the sane decision. The, you know, the sane decision was to get the hell out of there and as far away as possible. And that's what he did, didn't he? He went to Cuba. Uh, no, he, he went to Europe. Oh, um, did he go to yes, Europe? Yeah, he went to Europe. Um, and uh, and then he moved to to the UK. Um, but he got he got as far away as possible while while I stayed. So, he, so, I, so was he older he, than you? Yes, he was a few years older than me, and mm-hmm. I think that there was much more of a, a, a confrontation with the with the father figure. Yes, um, and uh, also, you know, looking after my mother. Um, at the same time. So then basically he broke off all contact and we had no contact whatsoever. And it was enormously painful and incredibly difficult uh, for me. But there's a, there's another chapter which I can add now and I, yes. for the first time, I think. Um, and that is that since the book came out, um, he, he found a copy of it and he read it. Um, and I haven't seen him since 1994. Um, and I got an email and he's reconnected and he said just how much the book meant to him and how much it moved him. Um, and uh, yes, so we have, we have actually reconnected and been communicating um, uh, since then. What a uh, wonderful thing to have happened, out. yes. Because you didn't, I mean, you wouldn't, you weren't fighting you and your brother. It's just that he chose to get the hell out of there, as it were. Yes, and I, and I think that he's, and, and in the, I think he went into mourning in a way. And you can imagine, he was also leaving because of the army. Mm. Um, he was fleeing, he was yeah. fleeing, fleeing military conscription. And then he landed up as this, uh, you know, this deracinated individual in Belgium, uh, struggling with the language, having gone through that when he was a child. Because mm-hmm. we went the whole family moved to Belgium in the early 1970s um, and then we returned to South Africa because of my mother's condition she she had lapsed back into into psychosis um, and it was better to bring the family home so he was going to relive that experience in a way um, and he went as a refugee essentially that Mm -hmm. even though the whole of Europe was against apartheid if you defected from the apartheid military you were considered to be a a runaway Um, (laughs) so so there were all those contradictions. So he had to he had to deal with that, and and all these little factors have played roles in my life. I'm, I was thinking just the other day that you know why am I so concerned about the condition of immigrants in in South Africa and of xenophobia and all these things? And I think it comes out of part of these experiences of my dad having come as an immigrant, and then mm-hmm. of my my brother having fl- fled as a refugee. So at Ground Up, we write a lot about uh, immigrants. We're going to um, talk about Ground yeah, Up soon. Sure. But, I mean, there's this the Belgian episode, isn't there, Where mm. which sounded actually as though it was the hardest for your father. 
because mm. he really battled, didn't he, to keep the family. Mm. He thought mm. he was taking it to a new life, mm. and it didn't work out that way, mm. did it? Mm. No, um, he, he thought that everything would be better back in Belgium, and, and he had all this nostalgic vision of his country, only to be confronted with his terrible father. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my grandfather was a hero of the resistance, um, and uh, he had, I still got some of his, his medals that he received. Um, he was also a champion boxer, um, and he had been in the cavalry in the First World War, um, and a very hard man, uh, but, uh, but this great hero. Meanwhile, he would go home, and he would be violent uh, towards his, his, his child, mm. um, which has always left me skeptical of struggle heroes. Um, you know, I want to know what do they do at home. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not always taken in <laughs> by, you know, by the most, the great heroes of mm-hmm. this world. Um, uh, and, uh, and that taught me many, many lessons uh, as well. So, uh, yes, so, so my grandfather's story is also a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. And, and my, my father's survival of that, I think, is also remarkable. Yeah. And you came back to South Africa, and uh, I mean, you also had financial problems, didn't you, as a result of that mm-hmm. move and then coming back mm-hmm. and your father having to work long hours mm-hmm. with a wife that was becoming unstable? Mm-hmm. Yes, because, um, yes, and also my mother never worked. She never mm-hmm. had a professional job. That was not something that she felt that she could do. She had worked as a secretary. She'd been quite successful um, in that, but then she had her series of, of, of breakdowns and she had went into Falkenberg. Um, but he Yes, we were very poor for white people in in South Africa, um, and we really struggled uh, just to put food on the table. Mm. Um, and it's it's interesting in the circles where I've moved, and you know how my own life has changed. Um, where I've, in so often I'm in environments where uh, you know not a single person uh, around me has actually had a father who put on an overall every day and was covered in oil and worked on a factory floor at a machine. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so that I think has also given me an enormous uh, more insight into let's say uh, the the working class and and and, and a much closer. Um, identification with the, with those kind of struggles in in South African history as well. We must talk about your mother's painting and horse riding, but let's have your next piece of music from Jewish folk poetry. There's a Jewish connection here with your mother in a sense, isn't mm. there? Yes, um, she yes she she believed she was Jewish towards the end of her life. Um, but she wasn't Jewish. Not no, not that uh, not that we know of. And my grandmother was Ruby Morris, but um, I don't the the, the English. Uh, uh, but uh, we yes, there's no uh, there's no evidence that we we were Jewish. She had this she had this belief later on in in in, in life. And uh, yes, and this is a, a, a cycle of songs uh, that Shostakovich wrote, um, which you couldn't perform because of Stalin, yes. um, and yes. only performed it in <laughs> 1955, I think it was. Mm. Um, it just—it's an exquisitely beautiful piece, and I thought it was appropriate here um, because of its beauty and also because it's the connection between the mother and the son.
That was the first song from a cycle by Shostakovich called From Jewish Folk Poetry, Lament, and it was sung by Elizabeth Söderström. And it was the choice of my guest, Brent Mearsman, on People of Note this week. Brent's just written a book called A Childhood Made Up, Living with My Mother's Madness, which we've been talking about. But there's also Rattling the Cage, your latest book, Brent, which we're coming to. But I mentioned just before the music, one of the things that really seemed to keep your mother going was her painting. She seemed certainly up to a point in her life to be absolutely mm. absorbed by painting. Mm. It was her world, wasn't it? Mm. Yes, it was her world, it was her therapy, it was her it was her way of, of, of existing. Mm. Um I think that she was an artist in the in the very truest sense of that word. She would describe herself just as a as a housekeeper and a housewife. Um mm. and from the outside, if you met her, she's a, a very sweet lady. Um and not obvious in any way, no big career, no profession, no degree at university, but an extraordinary rich interior um, imagination. Um, and she had the sharpest eye. You know, we would, uh, on the occasion that she would go out, which was very seldom, um, we would go into town um, and I, you know, we'd do some shopping or something and then come back on, on, on the bus. Um, and then her scribbler the next day would be filled with drawings and I could instantly recognize, I recognized the people that I had glimpsed and seen uh, the previous day in town. She had caught them absolutely perfectly. Mm-hmm. But her problem was, you know, not uh, so much the, the, the schizophrenia um, as the fact that she was a woman in South Africa trying to be an artist in the 1960s and 70s. Yes. Um, and she had all that against her, this incredibly masculine world of, of, of male art critics and, and male gallery owners um, and, and the general public. And, and, and that proved a big obstacle. Um, and then also because of the schizophrenia, she never had uh, formal and proper training. She couldn't take that as far as she would have otherwise mm-hmm. um, and developed more as, a, as a, if she'd been able to just dedicate herself to have more influences and more people helping. Um, I think things would have been th- things would have been different. Did um, she ever have an exhibition? Yes, she well, she she won a few competitions where her, her paintings were in, you know, but just community competitions okay. at the libraries oh. and things. She'd yeah, won a yeah. few of those. Um, when we moved over to Belgium, um, a gallery took an interest in her work and she sold a number of pieces there. But she never ever mounted an, an exhibition. I mean, we were just struggling, you know, forget about even framing the pictures. We didn't have money for that. The pictures would stand on little, my dad would put two nails and a little plank in the wall. I mean, literally all over the house and the yeah. paintings would stand on these little pelmets um, because we couldn't afford frames. Um, you know. Where are they now, so, these paintings? So there were a lot of paintings. Um, and then the exhibition I gave, uh, I gave her an exhibition uh, uh, posthumously and uh, was one of the things I wanted to do for her. So a couple of years after she died, um, we put together an exhibition and a very nice one with about 70 works of art. Um, and almost all of them sold. Uh, Gosh, people amazing. people loved them. And um, I was sorry to part with any of them. <laughs> yes, but it of must course, have been. But but of course I'm much happier that somebody um, uh, cherished it and mm. and thought it was important enough that they would they would buy it. Yeah. And every now and then I wander into a, into a place or a friend's home and I suddenly see oh there's one of Mom's paintings on the wall. That must so, be a good feeling. So they live on. Yeah. Other than that, I probably have a couple of hundred. Oh, uh, still. <laughs> yes. Was um, and in my my flat in Tambuscliff, I have. The whole one room is is wall to wall with them. They plastered all, all right around the walls, mm-hmm. uh, uh, 
touching each other almost like tiles. Um, oh, yes. But those are the works that you could do that with, of course, various freezes of figures yeah. and things. There's a lovely, well, I suppose mm. you could call it anecdotal, where she apparently became quite skilled at drawing male nudes. And she was terrified in those days of people seeing Pornography being strictly banned and all that, wasn't she? Yes. She didn't like people to see these yes. paintings. Yes, because she thought they'd be frowned upon in, in mm. conservative, uh, rather backward South Africa that didn't understand art. And in fact, people would, you know, people who did, did make it past the front door would kind of giggle and snigger and, you know, find <laughs> this all terribly. And there's a, a story that she, she loved to tell me about um, uh, some neighbors. Um, I think they were called the Bassons. Um, and he told her the story and he was so proud of his son because they had the, this family had managed to go on holiday uh, to Europe and they had been in, in Florence and they had seen the, the statue of David um, and his little boy said oh, Sispa <laughs> and he thought this was hilarious <laughs> which I suppose it is well, it but is also it. rather tragic and oh. you must remember at that time even SABC in an art program I mean they would, they would sense, uh, you know, they would Kenneth Clark's civilization, they might cut out a nude uh, genital, Absolutely. Uh, uh, Absolutely. even if it was made out of stone. Bizarre. And your mother, she came from Freiburg, Freiburg yes. and developed a love of horses there as well, and yes. that stayed with her for her life, didn't yes, she? Yes, they had a big cattle ranch, so she was, she was a wrangler. She'd go out and she'd herd the cattle. Um, what do you think your mother would have thought had she been alive and you wrote this book? Do you think she would have been proud of you? I or think, do you think she would have been offended? I think she was, she was proud of anything that I did. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, she probably wouldn't have liked it very much. And I, and I would never have published something like this while she was, while oh, she was alive. Um, not that it, there's any bad reflections on her. I think that it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for privacy. And she was a, she was a very private individual. Mm -hmm. so, but I think that, you know, waiting for your parents to die is, is a common thing with writers uh, before you can write that one book. <laughs> That might be your best. Oh, right. Okay. Brent, we're going to take another break now, then move on to some of your other activities because there's so much to talk about. And we've got Schnittke here, a piano quintet. Now, tell me how this comes into the picture. Well, um, you know, I've, I've been fascinated by Schnittke, and he's not, ev not to everybody's taste. Um, and I've chosen a, a piece which I think is more listenable than many okay. general uh, listeners would find. Um, it's a waltz, um, but with his unique uh, qualities. Interestingly enough, Schnittke dedicated this work to his mother, this particular quintet. So it appeals to me, and it also appeals to me, you know, dramatic music appeals to me. But this is the drama of the interior. It's very inward-focused. It's the inward psychological drama that I find riveting and, mm -hmm. I, and I, I wanted to share.
There's music by Alfred Schnitker, the 20th century composer, from his piano quintet, The Waltz, played by the Borodin String Quartet. And it was the choice, another choice, of my guest on People of Note this week on Fine Music Radio, the author Brent Meersman. Brent, we've talked a lot about your book, A Childhood Made Up, in that it's so personal. But in the course of reading this book, I realized that you started writing quite early. You were writing novels when you were... (laughs) Two bricks and a ticky high. <laughs> Where did that come from? I mean, literally sitting on, on a box so that I could get my little fingers above my mom's Olivetti typewriter <laughs> yes. and I could hammer away. Right. Um, yes, I, I always wanted to be a writer. It, was, it came into my head. I don't know exactly why. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was an inference from my mom. I, I know she had tried her hand at writing and she'd actually written a novel, uh, which she very grandly threw into off the, we were on the HMS Randfontein to, when we left for Belgium, and she threw it in the Atlantic Ocean, oh uh, the only copy of her manuscript, <laughs> much to my father's horror, who thought it was rather good. Yeah. Um, but yes, so, and uh, yes, I wrote, I was plugging away writing, you know, Beagles-inspired books uh, as a child, right. uh, and I always kept on writing, and, and then had a long, a long hiatus where I had to concentrate basically on looking after my parents and um, making money and surviving, mm-hmm. um, and then was able, to, as soon as I was able to return to it I did and um, I've been publishing a book every second year now for uh, for the last 16 17 years and they mostly novels yes they've, they've mostly been novels they've been they've been four novels mm-hmm. um, and then there's been a, a travel book um, rather a naughty diary um, <laughs> around the world um, and then uh, the book of, of essays most recently there's a book of poetry and then the memoir so okay but this one that's just come out rattling mm-hmm. the cage mm-hmm. which I haven't seen mm-hmm. so I haven't had a mm-hmm. chance to page through it just wet our appetites tell me what that's all about right so that's a, a collection of essays about uh, reflecting on democratic South Africa, what's happened since 1994, and why does South Africa look the way it looks at the moment? That's the question I'm asking. Um, and then I trace the transition politically, economically, and socially um, from to 1994, um, and then follow up with the various, you know, the issues of the day. I look at everything from, you know, immigration to social grants uh, uh, to to the economy um, and its current state, and and then look a little bit over the picket fence as well. So the final section of the book, the last few chapters there, um, are about climate change uh, and the planet and the health of the planet. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to write that? Well, I've been writing about South Africa in addition to the novels and all my other stuff. I've been writing about South Africa for more than 20 years as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a you know, columnist for a long time with, uh, with the Mail and Guardian and This Is Africa and New Africa Analysis in London. Um, and now, of course, with Ground Up, I sort of feel very much like I'm in, in the front line trenches mm-hmm. um, there with hard news stories that we are doing. Um, and uh, I, I had thoughts and I didn't think that the I thought I could bring a unique perspective um, and I think I, I think I have done that um, and having read so much other non-fiction which I've you know I was a voracious reader um, I found that there was something still to be said about these issues and to be articulated and mm-hmm. that's the collection of essays tell me a little bit about ground up 
Yes. Um, Ground Up is a, is a news agency, mm-hmm. so you are probably reading our stuff, a, a lot of it, without necessarily knowing so, because people don't generally pay much attention to the little bylines and, and, and you know, the fact that the story is from Ground Up. But if you're reading any of the major news networks like um, Times Live or News 24 and, and Daily Maverick uh, and many, many others, mm-hmm. um, sorry to leave out our other republishers. But well, this, I don't think I can that's list a problem. Endlessly. <laughs> um, but you're probably reading our stories all the time. So, and, and we focus on, on human rights and, and social issues. Uh, that's, those are our primary focuses. Now, we're recording this interview as the Great Fire is mm. hopefully coming to an end. Mm. And you were very excited when you were telling me how your team has actually succeeded in getting itself into an American mm. uh, network. Yes, uh, I was very pleased to see that Nature, the international uh, periodical, has actually used one of our photographs as, as their lead on, on the story, mm-hmm. um, which is about um, what's been lost in terms of the science libraries um, in the fire at UCT. Um, but yes, our reporters have been out and they've been on the ground and uh, we've been, yes, uh, there's always a, you know, t- t- sad and terrible events and, uh, and certainly the student protests were another case uh, the first cycle of student protests with the roads must fall, mm. um, which kept us incredibly busy. So there's always this double thing for the news, for the news hound. You know, there's this, this thrill and this uh, excitement and tragedy, of yeah. this news story, and then also you just see the readership explode around these stories because everybody's interested and it flies around the world, um, and that's a big thrill. But at the same time, you are deeply aware of just you really would rather not have to write these stories at all. Right. But Brent, you've got reporters working for you. It's a whole organization. Yes, it's a whole organization. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, and how and are you We do a lot of free freelancers. Um, it's the best news job in the world, I say, because we are fully foundation funded. Um, we don't, and we only, t- and the foundations never uh, impinge on our editorial lines or on anything. So we don't have to worry about eyeball counts. We don't have to worry about <laughs> writing uh, clickbait headlines. We don't have to worry about um, advertisers that, uh, you know, want certain placement or corporate advertisers who suddenly find themselves as the subject of the news story and one has to tread around. We don't have megalomaniac, um, egomaniac uh, um, owners of our media corporation, yes, which is yes, not yes. unknown <laughs> phenomena. Um, and uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have that kind of intrusion from, uh, from the owners. So it's, it really, we can do good, old-fashioned, hard journalism, which, by the way, is fact-checked. Now, how do you read Ground Up? Is it online? We're, yes, we're online with our own uh, website, so groundup.org. Dot ZA, okay. um, and you can find all our news there. And then, as I say, you, you're reading us all the time. Yes. I'm going to have to look out more carefully in the little corners. I see we've got Messian coming up, that remarkable work he did, the quartet for the end of time. Um, now, why have you put this in? Well, first of all, it's an extraordinary piece of music, but it's about survival. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of my father and having lived through the Nazi occupation. Now, Messian, of course, composed this particular piece while he was a prisoner of war right. and while he was in the camp. Um, and interesting thing about it is, of course, he had to compose it for the instruments that were available yeah. and even more so taking into account the condition that those instruments were in. So for me, it's um, it's. An an extraordinary piece of music and it's about survival in distress um, and so it speaks to me very much about my father and this movement prays for the immortality of Jesus 
Yes, again, it's got that sense of transcendence, even okay. though you're in predicament.
That's a movement from that extraordinary work by Messian called The Quartet for the End of Time. And the players there, Sashko Gavrilov, Hans Deinzer, Siegfried Palm, and Alois Kontarski. A taste of Messian here on People of Note. Brent Mearsman is my guest. In the little time we've got left, Brent, one of the things that's always fascinated me about you is your absolute passion for travel. Mm. I mean, it says eight, did it say 85 countries, mm. I said earlier. Mm. Why, why? Travel broadens <laughs> the mind, they say. Very much so. And I think that, you know, when you travel, it's like, you know, we all drive on the left-hand side of the road. And then you go to another country and you find out that people can drive on the right-hand side. And it's different, but it works perfectly yes, well. Yes. Um, and that, for me, is what, what traveling really is about. So I've, um, and also I think it was instilled, that love of, of, of adventure. And, you know, I was instilled by my extraordinary aunt, who was like, a character out of <laughs> was she the one movie. that was at the United Nations uh, yes she was yeah. at the United Nations and based all over the world and caught in various wars and revolutions <laughs> from <laughs> from the Sikhs in India to uh, the, the Gaza Strip and revolutions in Guatemala um, and she would always come back with these wonderful tales so she mm-hmm. put really put the love of travel in into me and I've been traveling I you know I try and do two or three trips a year um, now I'm, I'm not quite sure obviously things have changed and also I think that maybe one day in the future people look back and and when you say that you went to 85 countries and all the continents uh, people will will gasp and say <laughs> how were well, your carbon footprint what a yes. crim- you are a criminal you know <laughs> That's true. I um, what that. a, what, a, what a dreadful thing you've been doing um so it might be something not to be proud of uh, in the future but, did you, but for did me it was meeting people yes how did you go were you sponsored to no. do stories or did you just decide i want to go to no I, no I, I i could be living in a very big house by now if i hadn't traveled such a lot um no not sponsored but i travel in in different ways um but very often i just take my little backpack um and i i get on a plane and i don't always know where i'm going to stay the, the following night um, and then I will get to this country, and I'll make it up as I as I go along. Gosh, we're so different. And I'll just go from <laughs> I'll just go from one to the next, yeah. uh, and and I try to go, you know, somewhere which is you know said to be civilized. I mean, like I try to get a lot to Europe um, and, uh, and 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 North America, uh, but then I go to very out of the way places and like Antarctica, to, which must have been an experience, right? And and then also I just traveled through um, Burma and 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 Laos and Cambodia. Um, recently mm-hmm. um, so and I'd like to go off the beaten track and um, into the jungles um, and up on the mountains and uh, into all different climbs um, and I will sleep in tents and I will sleep in hostels um, uh, I don't feel I'm too old for that so I'm quite <laughs> proud when I when I manage to sleep in a hostel. I need a five-star hotel rent I do but only <laughs> once a week Oh, okay. Um, okay. So to I will, clean up exactly. So yes. I will. I will pace it in that way, okay. um, and and just take public transport. But these days, really, with you know, with apps um, and with all the other things, is mm-hmm. it is so simple. I mean, if you've got Google Translate on your phone and you've got Google Maps. And and you can book any hostel, and you can say, I want it, you know, with air conditioning or a fan and hot water or cold water, and under eighty rand a night, you you will find it. It will right. be on an app, and right. there'll be like one hundred and something choices in this town. The other thing I caught sight of in your book and made me fill with nostalgia was you were on the RMS Centelina, the glorious RMS Centelina. Yes. But you were coming from Ascension, so you obviously stopped at Centelina, and then you yes. had to get off in Walfus Bay or something. Yes, that's right. So yes, so that that trip was a very very interesting one. So you could, at that point, you could take an RAF uh, Boeing uh, on its way to the Falklands, but you could, it would land in Ascension Island. Mm. So you, you leave from uh, Bryce Norton in, in, in the UK, 
fly to Ascension Island and then pick up the RMS St. Helena, go to St. Helena um, after a few days on Ascension. And then normally we'd go Volfus Bay and then come down to Cape Town. But I had to jump ship um, in Volfus Bay because my father had suffered a terrible stroke. So oh, I, yes. I jumped and the ship would take several days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I flew back. You need time mm-hmm. on the ships. Oh, And wasn't wonderful. she a beautiful ship? The and RMS and still going. I believe it's yes. been refitted even though they were going to. And, and for the money that they've wasted on that airport that sort of didn't work initially, um, I think they could probably have a fleet of ships going backwards and forwards. Exactly. Brent, we have to end now, but thank you for a very interesting conversation. We'll keep a lookout for your book called Rattling the Cage. And the book I've been talking about in some detail is called A Childhood Made Up, Living with My Mother's Madness. And um, this is published by Tafelberg. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Thanks for sharing with us, Brent, and your music as well, which has been, I have to say, different, like mm. this last piece, Alvo Piet, Cantus, A Memory of Benjamin Britten. Mm. Why does this make an appearance, apart from the fact that it's a fairly hypnotic work? Yes, well, I've, I've always, I'm fascinated by, by Pat, which um, he, he divides the classical community. Um, some, it's people think it's, <laughs> some people think he's overrated. I find his music uh, wonderful. And I actually, the first time I heard about him was the fact that he had gone apparently on a silent retreat and he hadn't spoken for two years or something while he, mm-hmm. com- he got himself into his music. But this one is here. This one is uh, really for my father. And I, I played it after he died. Um, it's the one piece of music that really speaks to me about the eternity of time um, and that the relentless, unstoppable persistence of time, um, which was very significant for me at that uh, on my father's passing. Um, and I do hope that you'll be able to play it through to the to the very end. Yes, it's a bit on the I'll tell you what we'll that. do. We'll join it slightly after the opening right. so that we get that magical, mysterious ending. Thank you. Brent Mearsman was my guest. Brent, thank you very much.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Mm-hmm.